The first reading is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, starting at verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is God of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John has preached. How God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. And the gospel reading is taken from the Gospel of St. John, Chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? 
Who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let me add my uh, warm greetings to you. Wish you a very happy Easter. It's great to have you here uh, this morning. Especially welcome if you're visiting to us for the weekend. Let's pray for a moment, and then we're going to look at that passage from Acts chapter 10. Thank you, Father, for this glorious, glorious day, a day of new life and new hope. And we pray that you would help each one of us to go from this place today, strengthened in our faith in the risen Jesus. Amen. What do you, um, what do, you do when you see something really, really wonderful? I want you just for a moment... I did this at the 8 o'clock service this morning. Some of you might have been there as well. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment and just picture in your imagination a moment in your life which is truly memorable. Maybe something you saw, uh, maybe somebody you met, uh, but most of us have moments like that. Just a moment if you can picture that in your imagination. Something that took your breath away. It's rather actually rather exciting at 8 o'clock service. Something happened to you, which as a vicar can only happen about once or twice in your entire life, that I did this exercise, and one person in the 8 o'clock congregation came up to me afterwards and said, when you asked us to picture something that changed your life, it was the moment that you came to visit me in hospital for the first time. I just felt so good. I just felt, I felt my ministry is worthwhile here at last. But that wouldn't have been my moment, I can assure you. But... Uh, What I was thinking of when I wrote this was I can think for a moment as I close my eyes and the moment, the first moment I saw the Victoria Falls and imagining David Livingstone walking around the corner and seeing that amazing sight uh, for the first time. Or uh, I could also think uh, sitting in Princess Diana's seat at the Taj Mahal looking at that amazing building. That was a moment for me as well. Of course, sometimes it's a sports event. I can think the first Olympics I went to was the 1988 Olympics. Most people remember Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis stealing the show at the 1988 Olympics in the 100 metres. But my unforgettable memory is Florence Griffith Joyner, Flojo, flying round the 200 metres to win in a world record time. An incredible sight. I fear she may have been cheating, but it was still a wonderful run. (laughs) I also thought as I prepared my sermon of a moment in 1971 when I was uh, standing on the pavement outside uh, 159 Banbury Road, just up by the lights here. Uh, I lived at 159 Banbury Road for two years as an undergraduate, and my housemate had invited an uh, undergraduate from Somerville uh, to come and have supper with us. And this 
gorgeous red-haired girl arrived in a sort of rabbit-skin coat on her ancient bike. And I was immediately struck, so I married her later. <laughs> Life-changing moment. We all have moments like that, I'm sure. Life-changing moments, moments which live with us forever. But none of our memories surely can equal that of Peter and the other disciples when they encountered the risen Jesus on that first Easter morning. That must have been a moment of quite extraordinary significance. And it's interesting that Peter's earliest sermons, as reported in the book of Acts, kind of burst with news of the resurrection. It's as if he can't, he can't keep quiet. Look at any of those sermons at the start of the book of Acts, and it is the experience of the resurrection, meeting the risen Lord, that, that he just comes pouring out of him in every sermon. Eventually, in Acts chapter 4, he, in describing his experience of the resurrection, so certain is he that this unique event has changed his life that he says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. He's absolutely convinced. I made my second trip to the United States just after I was first ordained, and I was serving at a church in, in London, and Sue and I went back. We, well, I'd been at Wycliffe, Uh, Hall, I'd been to a Christian conference in Florida about the ministry to the world of sport, and that had had a huge impact on me, uh, changed the direction of my life in some ways. But after a year of my curacy, we went back together to visit some of the people that we had met the year before. When I came back, so enthusiastic was I about America that I could not stop talking about it. So uh, my sermons, apparently unconscious to me, were sprinkled with when I was in America, when I was in America. So much so, I hadn't really realized that I was doing this. But at the Christmas church party, they had a sort of sketches and took off the clergy mercilessly in the Christmas party. All the sketches that features me began when I was in America. (laughs) When something really big happens in our life, we simply bubble over with the experience. Uh, A life-changing, a memorable moment becomes something we, we cannot stop talking about. Now, by his own admission... Peter was not the sharpest tack in the box. We know that. He struggled, for instance, to understand Paul's letters. Well, he wasn't not the only one who had that struggle, but, uh, but he admitted to that. Though he was the effective leader of the group of the disciples, he did and, and said some pretty daft things when he was with Jesus. And in a sense, he's no hero either, because when it came to the crunch, he couldn't stick up for Jesus even in front of a servant girl on the edge of the the crowd at Jesus' trial. But Easter morning changed him, didn't it? It really changed him. From then, his conversation was littered with, when I saw Jesus raised from the dead. When I saw him raised from the dead. Now, there are many good reasons why some people find it difficult to believe in the resurrection. Of course we find it difficult to believe in the resurrection. It requires disbelieving in, disbelieving in, or at least recognizing that they can be superseded, the natural and physical laws which seem to govern so much of our lives. But there are also, I suggest, many good reasons for believing in the resurrection. The empty tomb, the resurrection appearances themselves, the existence of the church today, people claiming even today to have their lives transformed by encounter with the risen Jesus. But I want to leave you this morning 
with the evidence of the changed lives of the disciples, and particularly Peter, just that point, really, just that one point. You see, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, you might have expected the early enthusiasm to have worn off. If the resurrection had been hallucination, say, surely by now he would have realized. If he had made up the story, if he had made it up, his imprisonment by the Jews, Stephen's martyrdom, to say nothing of the persecution which had led, been led by Saul of Tarsus, amongst others, and scattered the Christians all over the place, including Peter, might have persuaded them to start telling the truth if they knew that they were making up the story of the resurrection. But nothing could be further from the truth than that because Peter, compelled by the Spirit of God, goes to the house of a Roman centurion to tell the family about Jesus. Now this is actually remarkable because at this stage in the story, as some of you will recall, Peter thought that the gospel was just for Jews, not for Gentiles, yet alone Roman centurions with all the power that they had. Cornelius, we're told, was a centurion in the Italian regiment, the elite regiment, and he had the power and the status to do Peter serious harm. In our first reading, we heard a bit of his sermon to Cornelius' family. It was very brave of him to go. It was remarkable circumstances that led him there. And his talk, which we obviously just have a summary of, contains several huge Christian themes. In a very few words, he packs a lot in. He says, for instance, that Jesus was both a man who went around doing good, but he was also Lord of all. He claims that Jesus was both human and divine, the incarnation. He says that he was executed by the Romans at the behest of the Jews, his own people, by crucifixion. He says that the death of Jesus was essential to achieve for believers what he calls the forgiveness of sins. That's the atonement, the incarnation and the atonement. Knowing that Cornelius was familiar with what we call the Old Testament, he says that Jesus was the one whose coming was foretold in the Old Testament by, amongst others, the prophets. And he claims that one day Jesus will return and that he would be the one who judges the living and the dead, what theologians call the parousia, the return of Christ, the second coming. Now, that is, those are huge themes to pack into one short sermon. And you'd need a bag full of sermons to explain them all. No time for that now. But the key thing, the center of the address, the key thing that, that Peter bases all his claims for Jesus on are the one single event that he refers to in verses 40 and 41. Let me repeat what it says. It said, But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter is ready to risk dying defending the almost unbelievable claim that God raised Jesus to life and he saw him. He was an eyewitness. He ate and drank with him. He said these things in front of someone who had the power to dispose of him. So these are clearly not the wild claims of, of a nutter, but the carefully considered explanation of a life-changing experience. A life-changing experience which then, empowered by the Spirit, 
utterly altered the direction of Peter's life. This was an experience so powerful that nothing for him could ever be the same again. An experience, perhaps the ultimate life-changing experience. More powerful than anything we imagined at the start of my sermon. Now, we live, we live here in Oxford, intellectual Oxford, in cynical times. Notice, notice for instance, how cynical people te- seem to be about our politicians, for instance. I think that's sad. I'm sure the great majority of them, not least those actually in government, are really trying to do a difficult job as well as they can. I was very struck by something that uh, appears in one of the Tony Blair's autobiography, uh, that uh, he's in a cabinet meeting, you may have read this, and a cabinet meeting and a note is put in front of him saying, uh, we think there's a plane about to fly into, uh, a suicide plane about to fly into London, Shall we shoot it down? You've got three minutes to decide. And that is not an easy position to be in, is it? That's a pretty tough position to be in. So we should be very careful about being cynical about our politicians who are doing such a difficult job. But there is that tendency, and sometimes, of course, they deserve it because we're not sure they're telling us the truth. But we must not let our tendency to cynicism prejudice our decision to believe or disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus. In Peter's time, surely there were, there were few likely to be more cynical about resurrection than a Roman centurion who had seen the very worst of life. And it's striking, isn't it, that at the Calvary scene itself, the centurion who is observing Jesus die concludes, as Mark tells us, surely this man was the Son of God. If this man, this centurion, and his family could welcome the risen Jesus into their lives following Peter's sermon, then so can we. See, what happened as Peter testified to the truth on that Easter morning was that the life-changing experience that had been Peter's, the filling of the Spirit, the certainty, the assurance of salvation the certainty that Jesus now dwelt in his life by his spirit, that same experience became the experience of Cornelius and his family as they were filled with the spirit and baptized and became Christians. That is, that is the Christian experience. Peter saw the risen Jesus, ate with him, drank with him, spoke with him. Cornelius came to know the risen Jesus. We too come to know the risen Jesus as we put our faith in him and step out in trusting him. You see, and this is the wonderful truth which perhaps so many, even many who go to church, miss, the experience of knowing the risen Jesus is as available to us today as it was to Peter. We may not see him, eat and drink with him any more than Cornelius and his family could, but as we hear and receive the news of his death and resurrection, as we celebrate it in a Holy Communion service as we are this morning, as we open our hearts to believe it, as we put our trust in him, his spirit overwhelms us and changes us. Christian conversion is the great life-changing encounter. It is the great life-changing moment in our lives. So Easter is both about the historical raising to life of Jesus and also about the experience of raising us to real life now. 
And my prayer for us this morning is that the Holy Spirit will come upon all of us as we hear this message again this morning, as it's read, as we celebrate it in the communion service, as it's explained, and that we too will be changed like Peter. We will never be the same again. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that on that first Easter morning, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit raised Jesus to life. Not resuscitated, so that he had to die again, but raised to a new kind of existence beyond the control of time and space. A new kind of life that we can begin to taste and see even now as the Spirit fills us and which will be our ultimate destiny. We thank you that this great truth which we encounter today changes, has changed our lives, will change our lives, can never be the same again. And we thank you for the hope it gives us of heaven. Amen.